0: The Law School of America. Freedom of the press in the United States is legally protected by the 1st Amendment to the United States Constitution. Nevertheless, freedom of the press in the United States is subject to certain restrictions, such as defamation law, a lack of protection for whistleblowers, barriers to information access and constraints caused by public and government hostility to journalists. History. 13 Colonies. In the 13 Colonies before the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the media was subject to a series of regulations. British authorities attempted to prohibit the publication and circulation of information of which they did not approve. One of the earliest cases concerning freedom of the press occurred in 1734. In a libel case against the New York Weekly Journal publisher John Peter Zinger by British Governor William Cosby, Zinger was acquitted, and the publication continued until 1751. At that time, there were only two newspapers in New York City and the second was not critical of Cosby's government. U.S. Constitution. The First Amendment permits information, ideas and opinions without interference, constraint, or prosecution by the government. It was adopted on December 15, 1791, as one of the Ten Amendments that constitute the Bill of Rights. Early Federal Laws. In 1798, years after adoption of the Constitution and 7 years after ratification of the First Amendment, The governing Federalist Party attempted to stifle criticism with the Alien and Sedition Acts. According to the Sedition Act, criticism of Congress or the President, but not the Vice President, was a crime, Thomas Jefferson, a Democratic-Republican, was Vice President when the Act was passed. These restrictions on the press were very unpopular, leading to the party's reduction to minority status after 1801, and eventual dissolution in 1824. Jefferson who vehemently opposed the acts, was elected president in 1800 and pardoned most of those convicted under them. In his March 4, 1801 inaugural address, he reiterated his long-standing commitment to freedom of speech and of the press, if there be any among us who would wish to dissolve this union or to change its republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated where reason is left free to combat it. 19th century. In mid-August 1861, four New York City newspapers, the New York Daily News, the Journal of Commerce, the Daybook, and the New York Freeman's Journal, were given a presentment by a U.S. Circuit Court Grand Jury for frequently encouraging the rebels by expressions of sympathy and agreement. This began a series of federal prosecutions during the Civil War of Northern U.S. newspapers which expressed sympathy for Southern causes or criticized the Lincoln administration. Lists of Peace Newspapers published in protest by the New York Daily News, were used to plan retributions. The Bangor Democrat in Maine was one of these newspapers, assailants believed part of a covert federal raid destroyed the press and set the building ablaze. These actions followed executive orders issued by President Abraham Lincoln, his August 7, 1861 order made it illegal, punishable by death, to conduct correspondence with or give intelligence to the enemy, either directly or indirectly. 20th Century. World War I. The Espionage Act of 1917 and the Sedition Act of 1918, which amended it, imposed restrictions on the press during wartime. The acts imposed a fine of $10,000 and up to 20 years' imprisonment for those publishing disloyal, profane, scurrilous, or abusive language about the form of government of the United States, or the Constitution of the United States, or the military or naval forces of the United States, or the flag, in Schenck v. United States, 1919. The Supreme Court upheld the laws, setting the clear and present danger standard. Brandenburg v. Ohio, 1969, revised the clear and present danger test to the significantly less restrictive imminent lawless action test. Near v. Minnesota. The 1931 U.S. Supreme Court decision near v. Minnesota recognized freedom of the press by roundly rejecting prior restraints on publication, a principle that applied to free speech generally in subsequent jurisprudence. The court ruled that a Minnesota law targeting publishers of malicious or scandalous newspapers violated the First Amendment, as applied through the Fourteenth Amendment. Brandsburg v. Hayes. Freedom of the press was described in 1972's Brandsburg v. Hayes as a fundamental personal right, not confined to newspapers and periodicals. In Lovell v. City of Griffin, 1938, Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes defined the press as every sort of publication which affords a vehicle of information and opinion. This right has been extended to newspapers, books, plays, movies, and video games. Associated Press v. United States Associated Press v. United States, 1945, dealt with media cooperation and consolidation. The court held that the AP violated the Sherman Antitrust Act by prohibiting the sale or proliferation of news to non-member organizations and keeping non-members from joining. The AP bylaws constituted restraint of trade and the fact that AP had not achieved a monopoly was irrelevant. The First Amendment did not excuse newspapers from the Sherman Antitrust Act. News, traded between states, counts as interstate commerce and is subject to the act. Freedom of the press from governmental interference under the First Amendment does not sanction repression of that freedom by private interests, 326 U.S. 20. Justice Hugo Black wrote, The First Amendment rests on the assumption that the widest possible dissemination of information from diverse and antagonistic sources is essential to the welfare of the public. Freedom to publish is guaranteed by the Constitution, but freedom to combine to keep others from publishing is not. New York Times Company v. Sullivan. In New York Times Company v. Sullivan, 1964, the Supreme Court ruled that when a publication involves a public figure, to support a suit for libel the plaintiff bears the burden of proving that the publisher acted with actual malice. Knew of the inaccuracy of the statement or acted with reckless disregard of its truth. Greenbelt Cooperative Publishing Association Inc. v. Bressler. Main article Greenbelt Cooperative Publishing Association, Inc. v. Bressler. In 1970, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that a news organization could not be sued over the use of rhetorical hyperbole. The usage in question was when quoting eyewitnesses, but the court ruled that, even if it had not, to call it libel, would subvert the most fundamental meaning of a free press. New York Times Company v. United States. Main Article, New York Times Company v. United States. In 1971, the Supreme Court upheld the publication of the Pentagon Papers. Hazelwood v. Kuhlmere. In Hazelwood v. Kuhlmere, 1988, the Supreme Court upheld the right of a school principal to review, and suppress, controversial articles in a school newspaper funded by the school and published in its name. 21st century. Although it has been uncertain whether people who blog or use other social media are journalists entitled to protection by media shield laws, they are protected by the free speech and free press clauses, neither of which differentiates between media businesses and non professional speakers. This is further supported by the Supreme Court, which has refused to grant increased First Amendment protection to institutional media over other speakers. In a case involving campaign finance laws, the court rejected the suggestion that communication by corporate members of the institutional press is entitled to greater constitutional protection than the same communication by non-institutional press businesses. In United States v. Manning, 2013. Chelsea Manning was found guilty of six counts of espionage for furnishing classified information to WikiLeaks. Stop Online Piracy Act On October 26, 2011 the Stop Online Piracy Act, which opponents said would threaten free speech and censor the Internet, was introduced to the U.S. House of Representatives. White House Press Secretary Jay Carney said that President Obama not support legislation that reduces freedom of expression. The bill was shelved in 2012 after widespread protests. Obsidian Finance Group, LLC v. Cox. Main Article, Obsidian Finance Group, LLC v. Cox. In 2014, blogger Crystal Cox accused Obsidian and Kevin D. Patrick of corrupt and fraudulent conduct. Although the court dismissed most of Cox's blog posts as opinion, it found one post to be more factual in its assertions, and, therefore, defamatory. It was ruled for the first time, by the Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit that a blogger is entitled to the same free speech protection as a journalist and cannot be liable for defamation unless the blogger acted negligently. In the decision, journalists and bloggers are equally protected under the First Amendment because the protections of the First Amendment do not turn on whether the defendant was a trained journalist, formally affiliated with traditional news entities, engaged in conflict of interest disclosure, went beyond just assembling others' writings, or tried to get both sides of a story. Ranking of United States Press Freedom In 2018, the U.S. ranked 45th in the Reporters Without Borders Press Freedom Index. This is an overall measure of freedom available to the press, including a range of factors including government censorship, control over journalistic access, and whistleblower protections. The U.S.'s ranking fell from 20th in 2010 to 49th in 2015, before recovering to 41st in 2016. According to Reporters Without Borders the United States ranks behind most other Western nations for press freedom, but ahead of most Asian, African, and South American countries. Freedom House, a U.S.-based independent watchdog organization, ranked the United States 30th out of 197 countries in press freedom in 2014. Its report praised the constitutional protections given American journalists and criticized authorities for placing undue limits on investigative reporting in the name of national security. Freedom House gives countries a score out of 100, with 0 being the most free and 100 the least free. The score is broken down into three separately weighted categories legal, out of 30, political, out of 40, and economic, out of 30. The United States scored 6, 10, and 5, respectively. That year for a cumulative score of 21. Now a word from our sponsor. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new bumble now. The Law School of America. Freedom of peaceful assembly, sometimes used interchangeably with the freedom of association, is the individual right or ability of people to come together and collectively express, promote, pursue, and defend their collective or shared ideas. The right to freedom of association is recognized as a human right, a political right, and a civil liberty. The terms freedom of assembly and freedom of association may be used to distinguish between the freedom to assemble in public places and the freedom to join an association. Freedom of assembly is often used in the context of the right to protest, while freedom of association is used in the context of labor rights and in the Constitution of the United States is interpreted to mean both the freedom to assemble and the freedom to join an association. In the United States the right to petition is guaranteed by the First Amendment to the United States Constitution which specifically prohibits Congress from abridging the right of the people peaceably to assemble, and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Although often overlooked in favor of other more famous freedoms, and sometimes taken for granted, many other civil liberties are enforceable against the government only by exercising this basic right. According to the Congressional Research Service, since the Constitution was written, the right of petition has expanded it is no longer confined to demands for a redress of grievances, in any accurate meaning of these words, but comprehends demands for an exercise by the government of its powers in furtherance of the interest and prosperity of the petitioners and of their views on politically contentious matters. The right extends to the approach of citizens or groups of them to administrative agencies, which are both creatures of the legislature, and arms of the executive, and to courts, the third branch of government. Certainly, the right to petition extends to all departments of the government. The right of access to the courts is indeed but one aspect of the right of petition. Historic Roots In Blackstone's commentaries, Americans in the Thirteen Colonies read that the right of petitioning the king, or either House of Parliament, for the redress of grievances was a right appertaining to every individual. In 1776, The Declaration of Independence cited King George's failure to redress the grievances listed in colonial petitions, such as the Olive Branch Petition of 1775, as a justification to declare independence. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms, our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince, whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Historically, The right can be traced back to English documents such as Magna Carta, which, by its acceptance by the monarchy, implicitly affirmed the right, and the later Bill of Rights 1689, which explicitly declared the right of the subjects to petition the king. First use. The first significant exercise and defense of the right to petition within the U.S. was to advocate the end of slavery by petitioning Congress in the mid-1830s including 130,000 such requests in 1837 and 1838. In 1836, the House of Representatives adopted a gag rule that would table all such anti-slavery petitions. John Quincy Adams and other representatives eventually achieved the repeal of this rule in 1844 on the basis that it was contrary to the right to petition the government. Scope. While the prohibition of abridgment of the right to petition originally referred only to the federal legislature the Congress, and courts, the incorporation doctrine later expanded the protection of the right to its current scope, over all state and federal courts and legislatures and the executive branches of the state and federal governments. The right to petition includes under its umbrella the legal right to sue the government, and the right of individuals, groups and possibly corporations to lobby the government. Some litigants have contended that the right to petition the government includes a requirement that the government listen to or respond to members of the public. This view was rejected by the United States Supreme Court in 1984. Nothing in the First Amendment or in this court's case law interpreting it suggests that the rights to speak, associate, and petition require government policymakers to listen or respond to communications of members of the public on public issues. See also Smith v. Arkansas State Highway Employees, where the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the Arkansas State Highway Commission's refusal to consider employee grievances when filed by the union. Rather than directly by an employee of the State Highway Department, did not violate the First Amendment to the United States Constitution. The Supreme Court has largely interpreted the Petition Clause as coextensive with the Free Speech Clause of the First Amendment, but in its 2010 decision in Borough of Doria v. Garnieri, 2010, it acknowledged that there may be differences between the two. This case arises under the Petition Clause, not the Speech Clause. The parties litigated the case on the premise that Garnieri's grievances and lawsuit are petitions protected by the Petition Clause. This court's precedence confirmed that the Petition Clause protects the right of individuals to appeal to courts and other forums established by the government for resolution of legal disputes, although this case proceeds under the Petition Clause, Garnieri just as easily could have alleged that his employer retaliated against him for the speech contained within his grievances and lawsuit. The question presented by this case is whether the history and purpose of the petition clause justify the imposition of broader liability when an employee invokes its protection instead of the protection afforded by the speech clause. It is not necessary to say that the two clauses are identical in their mandate or their purpose and effect to acknowledge that the rights of speech and petition share substantial common ground. This court has said that the right to speak and the right to petition are cognate rights. Thomas B. Collins, 1945 see also Wait v. United States, 1985. It was not by accident or coincidence that the rights to freedom and speech and press were coupled in a single guarantee with the rights of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition for redress of grievances. Thomas, 323 U.S. Both speech and petition are integral to the democratic process, although not necessarily in the same way. The right to petition allows citizens to express their ideas, hopes, and concerns to their government and their elected representatives, whereas the right to speak fosters the public exchange of ideas that is integral to deliberative democracy as well as to the whole realm of ideas and human affairs. Beyond the political sphere, both speech and petition advance personal expression, although the right to petition is generally concerned with expression directed to the government seeking redress of a grievance. Courts should not presume there is always an essential equivalence in the two clauses or that speech clause precedents necessarily and in every case resolve petition clause claims. Note, the rights of speech and petition are not identical. Interpretation of the petition clause must be guided by the objectives and aspirations that underlie the right. A petition conveys the special concerns of its author to the government and, in its usual form, requests action by the government to address those concerns. This court's opinion in McDonald v. Smith, 1985, has sometimes been interpreted to mean that the right to petition can extend no further than the right to speak, but MacDonald held only that speech contained within a petition is subject to the same standards for defamation and libel as speech outside a petition. In those circumstances the court found no sound basis for granting greater constitutional protection to statements made in a petition, than other First Amendment expressions. There may arise cases where the special concerns of the petition clause would provide a sound basis for a distinct analysis, and if that is so, the rules and principles that define the two rights might differ in emphasis and formulation. Restrictions. The law of South Dakota prohibits sex offenders from circulating petitions, carrying a maximum potential sentence of one year in jail and a $2,000 fine. Circulation of a Petition by a Prisoner in Federal Bureau of Prisons. BOP, is a prohibited act under 28 CFR 541.3, and is punishable by solitary confinement. The term petition as used in both of these regulations is restricted to those petitions which are directed at the executive or legislative branches of government and does not include documents filed in a court of law, which are also referred to as petitions, such as petitions for quorum nobis, mandamus, habeas corpus, prohibition, and certiorari, among others. While these are commonly referred to as a petition they are forms of civil action against the government that may result in the courts issuing a writ directing the government to act, or refrain from acting, in a specified manner. The right of government employees to address grievances with their employer over work-related matters can be restricted to administrative processes under Supreme Court precedent. In Pickering v. Board of Education, the Supreme Court decided that the court must balance the employee's right to engage in speech against the government's interest in being efficient and effective in the public services it performs. Later Supreme Court precedent, Connick v. Myers, Garcetti v. Ceballos, and Borough of Doria v. Garnieri, has established that public employees must show they spoke as a citizen on a matter of public concern when suing their employer under the First Amendment speech or petition clauses. The Law School of America